It's week 51 of 2017. We've got some more stories from Amazon AWS. Google is being a little sneaky about putting Chrome onto Microsoft machines. And a lot more news for this week. So that's all starting right now on the IT Pro TV podcast. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Don Pazette. Don, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Ready to tackle some more great IT-related news stories that are out there, uh, you know, the the big events of the week. I know things are slowing down because of the end of the year, but some pretty cool stuff happened this week, so ready ready to talk about it. Yeah, we were, we were saying that as a result, it's, it's kind of less of uh, companies making big announcements and more just things going on, uh, whether they're... Um, there's some fun hacks or uh, things people are discovering, but uh, not all security related. We got we got a, f- a few things coming out of uh, cloud and uh, definitely that we'll get into. And uh, well, that kind of just leads me in pretty well. The, we've had uh, we had the AWS conference a couple of weeks ago, and things were trickling out from that. And there's still some news that uh, you were guessing maybe just didn't quite make the deadline, yeah. <laughs> but things that they wanted to get out there. Um, and so uh, a couple things uh, direct from the horse's mouth, so from uh, from Amazon. Uh, the first is that uh, they're introducing Amazon Linux 2 uh, and as, as part of AWS. So, Don, can you shed some light on, on what that is, what that means for us? Yeah, if you've worked with AWS or, or specifically EC2, if you've worked with it, then you're more than likely familiar with Amazon's own roll-up of Linux. Uh, if you haven't worked with it, then you might not know about it, that uh, Amazon actually has their own Linux distribution. And they didn't create it from scratch, but they took an existing uh, Linux distro, which actually they took CentOS uh, or CentOS. And if you're familiar with that, you know it's based on Red Hat. So Red Hat Enterprise Linux, uh, CentOS is the free and open source community edition of uh, RHEL or Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And Amazon took that, stripped it down, removed all the extra stuff that they didn't need, and put their special cloud acceleration drivers and the things that support their platform, as well as their command line interface and the other AWS-specific stuff into this Linux distro. And in the beginning, it was only available in EC2. So if I spun up some instances in EC2, I could run this Amazon Linux. And it, people usually call it the Amazon Linux AMI because they have the Amazon machine image. And so we'd, we'd run it in EC2. But Amazon has been putting a lot more work into that and they've started releasing like uh, a virtual machine uh, uh, that you could actually download and run on your on-premises servers, not just in the cloud. And that was cool because if I was developing an application on site, I wanted to use the same OS that I was going to be deploying to in the cloud. And that's what Amazon Linux let me do. Now, I work with it a lot. If you've watched any of the shows we've done here at IT Pro TV on, on cloud and on AWS, that's usually my go-to image when I deploy into AWS. I'm, I'm using that Linux AMI. But it was based on CentOS 6. And CentOS 6 still used Upstart as its init system. And it had several other things that are kind of dated at this point. Like the GCC compiler was a little dated on it. That it's you know based off of an older distro. And it was feeling its age. And, I mean, it still is feeling its age right now. Um, the current Amazon Linux AMI is still based on CentOS 6. And it is going to be. But the new one, the Amazon Linux 2, that they've, they've called it, is based on CentOS 7. So now it, it's updated. It's got newer newer support to it. Most importantly, it uses System D. And 
whether you love it or hate it, systemd is the standard init system found on, on most Linux distros these days, and it's very powerful. Well, if you're deploying in a local environment and you're using systemd, and you go to deploy up in the cloud, you want that same functionality. And I know that's a, a pain point that I've bumped into using the Amazon Linux AMI. It actually caused me to switch to some of the Ubuntu uh, AMIs for a while, uh, but now they're kind of correcting that. Now, officially, Amazon Linux 2 is not out yet. It's out as a release candidate. So you can go and you can deploy on it right now. In fact, if you go to deploy an EC2 instance, it's actually the second option in the list. Even though it's a release candidate, they've got it available. And what they're saying is we just need the community to test and make sure that everything's squared away. The reality is they've already done more testing than most people ever will. So it's, it's pretty stable. I've worked with it a bit since the announcement came out, and I've thrown a, a few light workloads on it. Haven't, haven't encountered any issues. In fact, by and large, it functions just like the, the previous one, except now you've got systemd. So instead of using like the service command, now you use systemctl. And they're deploying or, or making available for download the virtual machine images just like before. They've got them for Hyper-V. They have them for VirtualBox as well as VMware. And so you can download those and run them right in your on-premises servers and, and actually see and work with that same environment. It's, it's pretty slick. And so we had a show a couple of months ago about choosing a Linux distro. I think that was you and, and Justin. And then uh, just the, the last episode of the podcast we did was actually um, talking all about Kali Linux and uh, should that be a daily driver. So so just to clarify on this one, first of all, you said this is not something I can even run locally and uh, install as the OS on my machine. But So this is not something you do as a daily driver. Oh, right, or, yeah. Unless, it, well, unless maybe you're a... Your entire job is a sysadmin. <laughs> well, the, the, the main thing that's going to stop you from running it that way is there's no GUI. Okay. Right? It's command line only. So even if you did install it on your own hardware, it's just command lines. That, that's going to that's gonna kill that off by and large. Uh, but the other thing is that they've stripped out a lot. Anything that wasn't needed to run as a virtual machine, they took out. So when you run it on actual hardware, you're going to need network card drivers or video card drivers or things of that nature that aren't present on a virtual machine. Uh, on a virtual machine, you have a standard set of virtualized hardware that's presented. And on a physical machine, you don't. So it, it's just not it's not going to run right. And, and it's not worth the effort. Like if you're actually looking to do that, you'd be better off running CentOS or, or Red Hat or, or whatever it is that you chose to go with. Uh, but if you just need a virtual machine, that's where that Amazon Linux AMI comes in really handy. So uh, it's definitely cool. Again, I, I've used it a ton out there in the production world, uh, and it's nice to see that it's getting a refresh and a new version coming out. Cool. Well, the next thing we wanted to um, bring up from uh, the world of Amazon and AWS <laughs> is that they are actually launching a new region. And so, um, you know, there's there's all these data centers out there. It's in the cloud, but there's actually a computer somewhere. <laughs> uh, and so this one is the uh, the fourth one in, in the EU, in Europe, uh, and it's the first one in Paris, it looks like. So... Um, I mean, what does that mean for me as a as a person that has my my data? I mean, I guess that'd be good for the, your people, the pizzas. Yeah, sure. Is the T silent in pizzas? Uh, it is in France. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, this is really important because of a couple of things. Amazon has data centers all over the world, and the idea is that if you're going to spin up a server, you want it to be as close to your customer as possible. So they they need data centers everywhere. So just on, on that value alone, you know they're going to open up data centers. But they're really pushing hard to get more data centers in Europe because of some impending legislation, right? So the EU passed, uh, and I always forget what the stands for, so I wrote it down, the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. And GDPR is a set of rules that if you handle data on any citizen of the EU, 
there's certain compliance uh, hoops and hurdles that you have to jump through, even if the data is being exported. So you could be a, an American company and have customers in Europe, and you are now held under the GDPR rules. And even though you might say, well, I'm, I'm not in the EU, well, your customers are, so it, it applies. So this has worldwide ramifications. And one of the things that, that's inside of GDPR, buried deep down inside of it, is that if you collect data on an EU citizen and you store it on servers in the EU, it's far easier to clear the GDPR hurdles than if you collect data on EU citizens and store it on servers in your country outside of the EU. So if you don't export the data, it makes life a lot easier. So that means more people are going to be wanting to deploy servers inside of the EU than before. And in the early days, the, I think the, the first data center they opened in Europe was in Dublin, in Ireland. And while Ireland is a, it's a great country, they've got a great technology base there, they're not as, as well like, connected as far as data throughput to the whole rest of the continent. Uh, some of the, the, inter, the, the transatlantic lines run right there because it's, it's, it's far enough west, uh, but a lot of it just runs down in, into the mainland. So from that perspective, it wasn't the greatest place to have like, all of your eggs in one basket. So now we have Paris, we have a few others that have opened up in the EU, and that's going to make it easier for companies that are looking to shift their data. And if you haven't heard of the GDPR, um, timer's ticking. The, those rules take effect in May. So all of the rules are fully published, and, and, and they're out there. They gave everybody a two-year period to get ready. Uh, we're down to well, five, five and a half months to, to jump through those last hurdles. So if this is the first you're hearing about it, look it up. But for most of you, that should be old news. And if you look at the at the list of, of where they are in Europe right now, it's Frankfurt, Ireland, which says it's Dublin, uh, London, and now Paris. And so it's, it's almost a net zero gain because London will be coming out of the EU. <laughs> so where, where you have your stuff deployed, I mean, if that's an issue for you, you know, you, you, you might move your stuff from, from the London uh, sure. uh, you know, region over to... Uh, the other one there and, and yeah so dublin one is not in the uk that is in ireland not northern ireland but uh yeah definitely um something we'll probably be seeing a lot more of as they're continuing to add uh data centers around the world and just making things faster that'll be nice uh all right so next up let's shift gears a little bit um this uh this next article we're, we're talking google now and uh well we're actually talking google and microsoft and and Chrome and all those things and how they work together. But uh, Google is bringing a Chrome installer to the Microsoft Store. So what does that mean? <laughs> I can run my Chromebook apps now on my Mac or on my, on my Mac. Let's, so <laughs> on my service. When, when this article, when, when the, the headlines broke, it was kind of funny because people had different reactions. Um, there's a, a joke that people say that uh, Microsoft Edge, the, you know, their Edge web browser, they're really pushing hard. They're saying that is the best web browser you can use to go and download Google Chrome. And, you know, a lot of people will get a new Windows 10 machine, they'll fire up Edge for the first time, and they'll go to google.com slash Chrome, and they'll download it. Or, or you'll go to Firefox and download that. Uh, so you're just using the Microsoft browser to go and download the browser you want. Which it does much yeah. faster than Internet Explorer did, I would say. Yeah, yeah. With, so with better standard support better. Yeah. and uh, <laughs> a nice touch-enabled interface and all that good stuff. Uh, but what Google did was kind of funny, and, and I... I have to wonder whether Microsoft knew about this ahead of time, because I don't think they did. But Google decided that they wanted to uh, release Chrome, or at least a way to get Chrome, inside of the Windows App Store. Now, if you haven't used the Windows App Store, don't feel bad. Not, not many people <laughs> have the uptake on it. It's not been that great. But they have rules in that App Store that dictate what's allowed to go in. And if you put a web browser 
in the Microsoft Web Store, in the, the application store for Windows, then it has to use the same HTML rendering engine that Edge uses. So if your browser has its own HTML rendering engine like Chrome does, when it deploys uh, you know, through the Microsoft Store, it would have to use Microsoft's engine. And if it has to use Microsoft's engine, then it's not really any different than using Edge at that point, right? You've lost the competitive advantage. And it's not, Microsoft's not the only company that does this. Apple does it too. If you make a web browser for iOS, it has to use the rendering engine that Safari uses. That, that's the rule. So if you download Chrome on an iPhone, it's actually using Safari's rendering engine to show the page. And the Chrome stuff is, is really just like decorations around the outside. And, and your, your preferences and bookmarks and things like that would that be... That syncs across. And yeah. there's value in that, sure. right? But the, the way the pages render, that, that's not Chrome at that point. And, and that's how it would be if Google Chrome was available inside of the Windows Store. So the first headline that I saw said, uh, Google, Chrome, Google Chrome released in the Windows App Store. And I thought, wow, did Google finally back down on that? Then you go and you read and you find out, oh, what they did, it's kind of sneaky. They said, we're just going to take the installer for Chrome and put that in the App Store. And now you go and, and you get a, uh, a Windows 10 machine, you fire up the App Store, you download the Chrome installer, and you can install Chrome, and you don't even need to launch Edge or Internet Explorer. You can just use the App Store to get it installed and get it up and running. So I thought that was pretty funny. And my my first thought was, man, there, there's those the, the new Windows 10 S. Peter, have you heard about Windows 10 S? Uh, I have not. Uh, I don't know what the S stands for. I feel like it should stand for silly. It's this, this special edition of Windows 10 that cannot run traditional third-party apps. It can only run apps that come from the Windows App Store. And the Windows App Store has like eight apps in it. And yeah. that, that might be an exaggeration. It might only be six. And, and so it just doesn't have much in there. So if you have a Windows 10 S machine, I, I thought, oh, well, here, here's a, an avenue they can take to get Chrome and actually have it with Chrome's rendering engine instead of Edge's. That, that's kind of what I thought. But it turns out Microsoft wasn't too happy. And um, we, we made notes for this show, and it's actually since the notes were made, uh, Microsoft actually yanked the Google installer out of the yeah, App Store. Yeah, I, I was just doing the search and, and wanted to make sure I had that update. So, yes, it is, yeah. it is out now. Yeah, so I don't think Microsoft knew about this ahead of time. I thought Google just said, "Hey, let's see what we can get away with here. Yeah. Let's see if we can sneak." It this looks like it in. automatically fit the, the the rules, and and they said, "Okay, yes, the automated process allowed it in." But then uh, the people that go back and <laughs> review that stuff or saw the headlines rolling up, said, I bet it was the headlines. They yeah. they saw the headlines and like, "Wait a minute!" and and you know, violate some terms of service or whatever. But I thought it was pretty funny. And you know, every now and then you see these companies try and take advantage of the systems that other companies set up, and I, I think it's entertaining. So uh, this was a funny one to watch and a little bit of a, a back and forth between Microsoft and Google. And then uh, we had one other uh, Google-type story uh, come out. We had, uh, this is from googleprojectzero.blogspot.co.uk. I bit <laughs> off a little more than I could chew, thinking that was going to be a quick domain name. Um, so this is, uh, the headline on this one is, Apocalypse Now. Uh, exploiting Windows 10 in a local network with um, WPAD uh, and JScript. So, uh, so what's going on there? All right, it's a so lot of acronyms. It is a lot of acronyms, <laughs> and, and the most important one out of it all is WPAD. All right, uh, WPAD or WPAD. Uh, it's actually a very old technology. Uh, it's built around the idea of web proxies, and if you 
In today's world, it's actually pretty uncommon for people to use web proxies because we have transparent firewalls now. So as traffic passes through a firewall, it can be filtered and, and clients don't even know about it. You can do web content control and all that. Uh, but in the earlier days of the internet, or, or even in recent times when people wanted to do uh, web filtering, like inline web filtering, they would create proxy servers. There was a, a company, or is a company, uh, WebSense, that makes a, a proxy filter that is just amazing for schools and, and businesses that want to control the web pages that people can get to. The problem with these proxies is that if you wanted to use one, you had to go into your web browser, whatever it was, Firefox, uh, Internet Explorer, Chrome, whatever, and you had to go into your settings and you had to tell it to use the proxy. So instead, when I type www.cnn.com, instead of going to CNN's site, it would go to the proxy server instead. And it would say, hey, could you go and get a copy of CNN on my behalf? And the proxy server would say, sure, I'll go and do it. And it would reach out there and get a copy. Or it would say, no, you're not allowed to go to that site. And it would stop it, right? So it was, it was a gatekeeper. The really cool part about proxies is it made it easy to protect machines because technically your clients never went on the internet. They just talked to the proxy server. And the proxy server went to the internet on their behalf. So it was a great security measure, but it required configuration on the client. So years and years ago, I believe it came out of Mozilla, where they decided to try and make a way for this to be automatic, where you know we have things like DHCP, Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, where you power up a client, it looks at the network, and it gets an IP address, it gets a subnet mask, it gets all this stuff uh, from the network. Well, WPAD stacked on top of that and said, hey, once you talk to the DHCP server and you get your basic information, now you can discover a proxy server and automatically configure yourself. Well. That's nice because if you're at a school, now you detect the proxy server and you're getting filtered and, and protected. But it's bad if an attacker can be on your network and they can stand up a false proxy and abuse the WPAD, uh, WPAD protocol to be able to do that proxy auto configuration and push out a bad proxy to your client. And now all of your web traffic is flowing through the attacker. Right now, uh, the Google researchers that found this, the, the Project Zero team members, they call it a apocalypse uh, because it's it's actually more than one exploit stacked together. So they're using the trustful side of WPAD that says, "Hey, these clients will automatically pick a, a proxy," and they coupled it with a JavaScript exploit. So once you detected the proxy, the first page you requested, they could then inject a, pro a, a JavaScript, a malicious JavaScript, into your browser, which it can then execute. And now they could take control of your, your session and all the information you were handling and, and even uh, some remote code execution. So pretty bad stuff, but they, I mean, it did require them being in your environment to be able to override your WPAD values. The big problem here is that WPAD doesn't do authentication. And on a Windows machine, WPAD is enabled by default. They did a check, and they didn't find any other distros, you know, Linux, Mac OS. Uh, none of the other ones had WPAD turned on by default. But in Windows, it is. So the thing is, very, very few people use WPAD. And that means if you don't need it, you should turn it off. Uh, so they, they published it, and uh, uh, you can probably uh, Google and find it on, on, or just go to Google Project Zero.blogspot.co.uk, uh, and they've got the article there. Uh, but there's a registry key you can change, and, and just to, to get it here in this show, uh, it's HKey local machine, and then inside of system, inside of current control set, services, and then you're going to look for a key called Win HTTP Auto Proxy Service, or SVC, and just change its value to four. 
Once a value is set to four, that tells it not to support WPAD, and it'll ignore it. So even if an attacker tries to pull off this type of attack, it, it won't work. Right, so very easy to mitigate this, and I bet Microsoft changes that default to block it because really, it is an incredibly small amount of people that make use of WPAD, and if your environment does, the odds are you have an Active Directory. You can you can use a group policy object to push out enabling double, uh, WPAD for your systems, but because so few people use it, it's just an attack vector that doesn't need to be there. So uh, it was an interesting one. Attacks like these come out, and it just shows how sometimes companies are really good about reducing that attack surface. In this case, I think Microsoft isn't. So, so you were saying that this is something they could use to then take control of that system, basically. It sounds like they could also maybe just monitor the traffic and, oh, and, yeah. and steal what's coming through. It's kind of a man-in-the-middle situation. Yep. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, you know, it's a proxy. And so when you use a proxy, even with SSL, right, when you're building up an encrypted session, a lot of proxies will terminate that SSL session right there on the proxy. They'll leverage things like trusted certificates. Now, if you've gone through the trouble of setting up your CA and, and securing all of that, when a client gets redirected to that other proxy, it'll set up a red flag. You know, the certificates won't match and it'll break things. But if you haven't taken those steps, then at least any unencrypted traffic is going to be hitting this attack server and they can monitor that. They can manipulate it. They can change all sorts of things. Because remember, you don't go to the internet. The proxy does it on your behalf. So you might ask for your banking website and the proxy could serve you up a fake screen even with SSL. And, and now you provide your credentials and it logs it because it provided the SSL certificate as well. So it can completely... Uh, compromise that session. Yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with proxies. I use them here to get around the firewall restrictions <laughs> you've set up, which are very arcane. Uh, but uh, It's because we block MySpace. Yeah, you, yeah. and I need that. <laughs> I, I need that information. I need to see what Tom's doing. Um, so, all right, let's shift gears now uh, from the software side uh, over to the hardware side. So Broadcom, uh, and this is, a, let's see, this is a news release uh, probably from them. Um Broadcom is, has shipped Tomahawk 3 uh, to follow up, I assume, Tomahawk 2, uh, which came before this. The industry's highest bandwidth Ethernet switch chip at 12.8 uh, terabits per second. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I've made the comment before, I think here on this podcast, but definitely in, in some of my other shows, where uh, I said that switch technology really hasn't changed that much in the last 10 years. And that's true from a software perspective, from the perspective of things like spanning tree protocol and 802.1Q trunking, you know, all, all the stuff you do, Peter. Sure. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and that stuff really hasn't changed. But on the hardware side, things are still changing pretty rapidly. And while we don't see a whole lot of announcements uh, about new hardware and technologies here at Christmas time, Broadcom broke that trend. And this is a really impressive one. 12.8 terabits of throughput on this chip. That is really impressive. Now, I do want to, to make sure everybody understands what that really means. Like, that doesn't mean that one day you're going to have a computer that's moving at 12.8 terabits per second. That on a switch, you've got a bunch of ports. The more ports you have, that's the more people who could be simultaneously talking. If I have a 48-port switch, that's 48 computers that could all be talking at the same time. If each port is a gigabit port, then that's 48 gigabit of traffic. So the switch has to have a backplane, a circuit board on the back of it, that's able to move at least 48 gigabit of traffic. Now, it could be bi-directional traffic. So now we're talking about 96 gigabit. So the backplanes on these switches are usually far higher than whatever the bandwidth is that we have on our own computer network adapters, right? 
But network adapters have been advancing pretty quick. In fact, a lot of servers come with 10 gigabit adapters. 40 gigabit adapters are affordable now. 100, 200, and even 400 gigabit adapters have all been built. But, um, you know, good luck finding one. Uh, 100, you can find 200 and 400 gigabit are still really, really experimental and hard to find. Uh, but they're out there, right? They're, they're, they're coming out. They're coming down the line. So let's, let's just pretend for a moment that uh, I'll try and do some simple math here. If I had uh, a 48-port switch that was all 40-gig ports, right? So 40-gig adapters are, are commonplace. You can go in and buy them easily on uh, Newegg or, or whatever. You know, so not, not hard to find. So if I had a 48-port switch that had 40 gigs on each individual port, uh, that would be 1.92 terabit, uh, terabits per second, so uh, practically 2 terabits. Uh, if it were bidirectional, it would be close to 4 terabit. So that's the amount of backplane that we need. This 12.8 terabit, that gives us that room, that I could have a 48-port switch, or even more. I could have a 96-port switch, and they were all 40 gigabit. They could all be non-blocking, running at full speed because we have that bandwidth. So it's really neat to see that coming down the line, and, and one day we'll have these you know, giant core switches that are all 100 gigabit or 400 gigabit. And I'm not saying 400 megabit, it's gigabit. I mean, that is a lot of bandwidth. That's high-speed stuff. And we need that as, as computers advance, technologies advance, and we start moving bigger and bigger data. Well, you can do the math, Don, or you can just read from the article here. Um, oh, does it say it? <laughs> well, it says the, the things they support. So uh, it would support 32 uh, by, uh, so 32 ports on a, a 400 gigabit. Okay. All right. Or 64 at 200, or 128 at 100. So that's pretty amazing to have 128 ports at a, on a 100 gigabit off of this one chip. Yeah, I guess uh, you know, uh, fire up my quick calculator here. If you take 32 and multiply it by 400, you get 12.8 terabit, which is, is what they're Nailed advertising. It. So, uh, so there you go. I mean, that is that's some pretty fast stuff, and you're not going to have that in your your office closet for a little while, right? But in your rack um, behind you? Yeah, no, that's a far cry from that. <laughs> but um, uh, you'll start to see them pop up in ISP cores. That's usually where they start, right? ISPs, they move the most bandwidth, so that's where we need it. Uh, then it'll move into enterprise cores. From there, it'll move into enterprise closets before making it to small business cores and eventually tricking down from there. So for most of us, unless you're working in an ISP or a big enterprise core data center, you're probably not going to see this technology for probably seven years. It's yeah. usually a, a window that's that's between five and ten years. Uh, but if you're in one of those ISP environments, be looking for this in the next couple of years. Yeah, and w and what's cool here is you you think about as you as you network at at home, even you know you you find out that oh you've got gigabit internet now in your neighborhood or something like that, and that's that's great. But then you plug it into uh, you know the existing wiring you had that maybe doesn't handle that, or the existing you know router you have, or your computer that doesn't support that. So there's always that weakest link. So this yeah. sounds like you're saying this is one of the, the links that's traditionally been weaker, uh, where this is kind of a point where yeah it's great you got this huge pipe coming in and your computer can handle this, but it's still got to go through this switch that, that couldn't handle it. And now, yeah. well, now it's it's better. The other weak link uh, that you did mention is wireless, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That uh, a lot of people, I have this in my house, where I have uh, AT&T fiber at my house. I have a gigabit connection. And that sounds really awesome. It's a gigabit. Yeah. Well, you could then plug in a, a wireless router and have all your clients connect wireless. And what's the best they're going to get? If you're standing right next to the access point, maybe... 300 megabit? Yeah. So now you've got 70% of your bandwidth you can't even use while you're on the wireless. And so for homes, 
this stuff isn't really going to be impactful. Sure. Uh, even for small businesses, because small businesses, it's easier to do wireless. But in the enterprise environment, we have a lot of wired stuff. Or you have things like iSCSI SANS, which hopefully you don't have in an enterprise. Uh, but if you have things like that that need that high-speed physical connections, right, not wireless, then that's where this technology really soars. So that, that's why I say you'll see it in the ISPs, you'll see it in the enterprise. That's that space where it'll start first. And, and I was going to say that that could mean, you know, savings from the ISP then. They maybe have to have less hardware that they'll pass along to us, but net neutrality yeah. repealed, so... Uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon, but I guess th this would give them save money. It would give them more fast lanes they could charge for. Oh, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> my, for for my Netflix package, yeah. uh, I'll be able to to use that. So that'd yeah, be great. I, I'll stick with my MySpace package, which is pretty affordable. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's dial up. <laughs> you just get one, put one of the new AOL CDs in every time, and it works. Um, all right, so uh, let's switch gears now to well, this. This is a story about Facebook, but it's. Uh, more story about the technology that they're using. So uh, Facebook has a new facial recognition um, component that can find photos of you across the network. So, you know, what always happens is Don and I go hang out, and he'll uh, take all these photos and upload them, but he forgets to tag me. And basically, it sounds like now that uh, Facebook can look at that photo and say, I think that's Peter, and go ahead and virtually tag me in this photo, which this doesn't surprise me too much. I use... Uh, um, Amazon Prime photos for my, my photo storage. So take a photo on, on the camera and it uploads automatically. It's included in Prime. It's great. Um, but th when you first use it, it goes through all your photos and then it says, okay, here's all the shots we think are you. Now tell me who this person is. And, uh, you know, if it's, it's your daughter and then it finds all the photos that's, that's of them and, and does a really good job of categorizing them. So, um, you know, I think this technology has kind of been here, but it's creepy to have on the social side. Yeah, I, you know, this was one of those articles. I have this recurring theme. It's a problem I, I need to acknowledge in myself <laughs> that I seem to misconstrue headlines a lot. And when I first, and maybe that's intentional, you know, the, the media. But um, uh, when I read this headline, my first thought was thinking positive. I thought, wow, that's really cool. Like if somebody took a picture of me and posted, I, I want to know about it. So so it, it'll find me. It'll let me know that I'm in it. And you know, I think about all the times that you're you're at a store or you're at a, a an amusement park, and there's tons of people taking pictures around you. Did did you end up in the picture? Wouldn't it be neat to know? But then, as I started to read more about this, it turns out that uh, yes, it will find you in pictures you're not <laughs> tagged in, but only if you had permission to see those pictures in the first place. So it's really if your friends and family, you know, if one of your friends took a picture, you were in it, and they didn't tag you then it'll find you and you'll get notified. But if a complete stranger takes your picture, there won't be a notification there. You won't know about that because technically you don't have access to their feed. Facebook's uh, algorithm that runs on the background, it has access to everything. So it'll know about that, but it won't reveal it and, to you. And that's the scary part because you look at it from that side. I look at it from the perspective of when I'm eventually caught by the authorities for all the terrible things I've done, <laughs> will they, they be able to now place me where I've been? So I'll, I'll be able to look and say I've, I've cleared my whole track, I've got my, my alibi in place, but now this person who took a photo at Disney, Facebook knows I was you at know? Disney, and all of a sudden, my alibi is out the window. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, that that's absolutely true, though, right? Because yeah. if they had a, if they had a, a warrant... And, there, and there's, no, there's then, no protection to me from that, because it's this person's photo, and it's not my data that Facebook is revealing. Yeah. It's, it's the other person's data, essentially, that I'm in that photo that was legally taken. 
Hmm. So you could reconstruct somebody's timeline from that. It hadn't even occurred to me on that yeah, one. I'm sure that we already have all that from the phone in my pocket wow. saying exactly where I've been. And when you pull it out and it says, you're 12 minutes from home, you know, traffic is light. How did you know? <laughs> because I do it every day, I guess. You've but. said 4,000 words today. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, but. you haven't talked about me enough. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, one thing we didn't mention is that uh, this new Facebook feature, you do have to opt in for it. So it, unlike every other mm-hmm. crazy privacy violation thing they do uh (laughs) this one they actually make you opt in so it is turned off by default you will not get notified if somebody fails to tag you in a photo unless you opt in so go into your facebook settings um the story peter gave earlier is completely fictitious because i log into facebook once every three months (laughs) accept every friend request and then log out until three months later and do the same thing so uh Which, of course, means go and friend Don Pizzette on Facebook because uh, he'll accept it in about two and a half months from now, I think, based on where we are in the schedule. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, that's uh, I'm obviously going to opt in for this because uh, if I don't, I'm going to look guilty. So I I need to... uh, to go ahead and, uh, and opt in. That'll become the new foundations on how we evaluate people's character. We're like, did, did he opt into yeah. the face identification? What's he hiding? <laughs> Obviously, something something big. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, that's, that's going to get me. It's going to be my downfall. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, all right, so um, now to shift gears to something much, much happier, a, uh, a security firm being hacked. Uh <laughs> I don't, I don't know why. I, 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 I just finished season one of Mr. Robot, so maybe this is why this kind of makes me amused. But uh, a Dutch uh, security firm uh, fell victim to an attack, basically, and, and this is another man-in-the-middle attack. So mm-hmm. um, something about uh, having a certificate purchased or something. So sure. can you kind of walk us through how this would have happened? Uh, the, the article that Peter's referencing, it was on Ars Technica, which is a great website. They always do a phenomenal job of just doing a full on write-up with all the information. Uh, so if you read through, you learn about it. Um, but I, I did find it really interesting. Oh, yeah, I've got the article pulled up. Uh, how the way they highlighted the, the, the headline from ours is that hackers take control of security firms' domain, steal secret data. And then it says attackers bypass HTTPS encryption protection by registering a new TLS certificate. So at, at first glance, you know, kind of looks like a, a TLS compromise. But the, the real compromise here is just, I mean, it's just right here at the beginning. They take control of their domain name, right? Every website has a domain name these days. So, uh, you know, if you go to Google, it's Google.com or Microsoft.com, whatever your bank is, they've got a name. And if you can get control of that name, you can do whatever you want. And you've really, at that point, fully compromised an environment. And so that's what happened here is hackers, they targeted the third-party registry that that registered that domain name for the company. And once they got control of the domain, it didn't matter how talented. Like, I'm not familiar with this Dutch security firm, but let's just assume for a moment that they have literally the best security professionals in the world working for them. It doesn't matter. Like once the domain is is lost, all of your customers are no longer being sent to you. No matter how secure your network is, DNS is now redirecting them somewhere else. And there are a lot of DNS technologies like DNSSEC that provide authenticated DNS responses. Well, if you've actually gained access to the registry account, that that lets you change the DNSSEC values. It lets you turn off DNSSEC. So all that security goes out the window. And what this article really highlighted for me was not, you know, let's worry about this attack. It was, let's acknowledge how important it is that our DNS registries are safe. That if you register a domain name and they support multi-factor authentication, turn it on. 
If you're not doing password rotation, you should be. If you're not double checking for password reuse, you should be. That domain account is really, really important. And some people use bigger name registries, you know, people like register.com or hover.com, where where they do a lot to make sure that their registries are, are really secure. Um, even some of the lower cost ones like GoDaddy, which is traditionally considered like a low cost DNS provider, they have a, a great security infrastructure built around their product. But other people just look for the cheapest DNS registry they can find, right? Because, hey, a domain name is a domain name. Who cares where you register? So why not find the cheapest one? Well, the cheapest ones don't have as good of security controls built around it. And hackers can do social engineering attacks to try and, and weasel out a password reset from support. They might be able to figure out a username and password from one of your employees or even you. They can figure that out. And once they get logged into the account, they can redirect it wherever they want, and you've totally lost control at that point. And that is really, really bad. The other bad part is once you figure it out, Again, no matter how good your staff is, no matter how highly trained they are, once you've found that this exploit happens, you can take control of your DNS domain again. You can reset it back to the right values, but DNS records can be cached for up to 48 hours. So even after you've fixed the problem, some of your customers could still be getting redirected to the attack server for up to two days. That's really bad. And so I hope this highlights for everybody how important it is to protect your DNS registration and and to look into what your provider is doing to secure DNS. And if you're not sure, or if you're just uncomfortable, then make sure you transfer your, your DNS domain to an, another company, a company that does provide security. Um, I recommend a few. Uh, Hover.com is great because they just really know DNS, and you can call and get a human being on the phone. Um, Amazon's Route 53 is amazing. I, I love using that one. Uh, you can also trust some security companies like Cloudflare can host your DNS for you. You know, again, they take steps to make sure that your DNS servers, uh, your DNS domain, is being uh, you know locked and secured, and that somebody can't just take control over it. So, really important thing, and something that most of us usually just trust to a, a registry somewhere. We just assume that they're not going to give somebody else control of our domain. Really, really important that we figure that out and, and take the right steps. Yeah, and sometimes this can happen because people are able to go in and, and um, you know, execute an attack or, or something like you uh, kind of described, but sometimes it can just be an administrative issue where you forgot to set that domain to uh, to automatically re renew for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it made me think of, um, and, and I found the article real quick, I actually sent it to you in Slack if you wanted to bring it up, but uh, this is back in 2015 where a man bought Google.com for $12 and owned it for a minute uh, because uh, basically... The, Google had had an administrative hiccup. I'm not sure if I'm sure they had something set up to auto renew, but uh, they uh, the person was able to get in there, and he was actually a former Google employee, uh. so able to get in there and uh, uh, register it for them, and they actually gave him a reward for discovering the flaw that he donated to charity, yeah. which Google in turn doubled. Oh, but, and uh, uh, yeah. And it cost him twelve bucks to renew it, and they refunded his twelve dollars. That's too, very so he nice. Got that. yeah. yeah, very. Well, they, nice. they said the the uh, that he was surprised to see it available, so he went ahead and purchased it, and then uh, and then they immediately uh, canceled it. But after they had updated the information uh. on the account, so I'm I'm actually really impressed that something automatic obviously was in place to, to yeah. have that only be a minute, but um, but still there there could be issues like that. that there that there was another horror story, and I, I forget the application, but it was a software vendor where they had a domain registered just for their automatic updates. 
And so that, you know, they had their main website that was on one domain, but their automatic updates were served from another domain. And they didn't renew that domain. Like they had moved to a new server or something, but clients were still looking to that domain for updates. And somebody bought that domain. And while that somebody, while that other person had it, they could have brought up a rogue server and pushed compromised updates to that software. Like that's, that's the risk. That happens with DNS domain names. And it also happens with Amazon S3 buckets that S3 buckets have to have a name that is unique across the entire world, right? So when you create a bucket name, it's, it's, you're the only one that has it. Well, if you don't need the bucket anymore and you delete it, somebody else could come and create a bucket with the same name that you deleted yours. Now they can make it. And if they do that and you still have software looking to that bucket, they can, they can provide malicious updates or, or, or whatever, uh, compromised data that's being dumped in there uh, based on just the fact that we trust the name. So that's all stuff that we have to watch out for and, and keep an eye out for because it's, it's easy to overlook, especially with some secondary domain that's not our main site. And it just shows how important DNS is to our infrastructure. I think we're going to see in the coming years that DNS has to be kind of re-engineered because some of the stuff we've done to secure it, like DNSSEC, it's just it's so much effort and it only solves one particular attack vector. And then there's all these other attack vectors that it doesn't deal with. So there's no really like one solution to make DNS more secure other than re-engineer it from the ground up, come up with some new naming system. Well, I think we've got our marching orders now for the next few days. You've got to um, go and make sure your DNS is updated. Um, go try out uh, AWS Linux 2, but also move all your European information from London uh, now to the Paris um, <laughs> uh, distro there. And you've got... Um, Facebook, you got to opt in there so you can make sure that uh, your face is being broadcast um, to Busy everyone. Times. Yeah, so it, it, it's a lot to do, and, and thank God we've got some time off coming up for the holidays uh, to be able to do that here in, you in know, the U.S. At least. I just thought of something I forgot to mention. Um, uh, if if you're going to jump on that wagon and move all your data from London to, to Paris, yeah, um, be careful when when Amazon launches a new uh, region like that. When they launch a new data center, uh, AWS is made up of I don't even know anymore like 70 different services. When a new data center opens, not all 70 services are there, right? They always launch the big flagship ones, the Route 53, EC2, S3. Those are always there, right? But some of the other ones like Redshift and uh, Elastic Beanstalk, those aren't always there. And so you might have some services are available in the data center you're in, and Paris might not have them yet. So, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, if you if you see the announcement from Amazon, they list the yeah, services that are already available. There. That's what I was just looking at. They've got um, in the in the AWS um, article on AWS at Amazon.com, uh, they list all the services that are currently available. So okay, it's like, good. obviously, they're listing them because some are not there. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. they'd say all services are available. Yeah, I, so. And it didn't occur to me until you said, you know, so if you're going to move your stuff, and in my head I was thinking, what, what are the things I always think of when I yeah. move between data centers? And that, that was one of them. So definitely be aware of that. Uh, and same thing with EC2, where just because EC2 is supported, there may be certain instance types that are not available in Paris. Like the, you usually see that with the GPU ones, the, the graphics accelerated ones, where they might be available in London, not available in Paris, or vice versa. So just be on the lookout for that. Uh, don't, don't just jump in and just start moving stuff. Yeah, sounds good. Well, that's going to about do it for this episode today of uh, the Week 51 recap for 2017. Um, I'm looking forward to when we can say Week 1 here in 2018, <laughs> but that's coming up here in a couple of weeks. But for now, we're going to go ahead and wrap up. So if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, review it. We really appreciate that. For now, signing off, I'm Peter. He's Don, and we'll see you next time.